We are beginning a season as we start uh, this fall into studying Colossians together in which God has, I believe, a very unique and intentional uh, way that he wants to shape and mold First Street Bible Church as a whole corporate body and each of you as you personally soak in these words each week. Just a reminder again from chapter 3, verse 16, it'll be months before we get there, but it's such a good word for every single Sunday. Let the word of Christ dwell. Let it take up residency. Let it have a home where it's flourished and nurtured and watered by your sincere efforts to let it have its way, not only just going in your ears, but then working inside of you with this life. And the result of that is that you will then teach and admonish, that we will spur each other on. Colin Hansen reminds us that all of us, every one of us in the church, have some capacity as a student and some capacity as a teacher of God's work. So from the beginning, from 2010 when we started, we have said every week, prepare for coming to hear God's word. Pray as it's coming in, study it, be devoted completely to it, listen carefully for God. Then afterward, don't forget it. That's often the hard part. Ponder it, chew on it, and Colossians would say, verbalize it. So internalize it, but then externalize it, verbalize it, share it with others. So ponder that even as you're listening today, like how will I take what I'm hearing, what God's teaching me through verses five through eight, and then how will I share that so that others will be spurred on in it as well? So Colossians, glorious revelation of Jesus Christ to us. We see glimpses all over of his glory, his preeminence, his all-sufficiency for every need, as our tagline has been for Colossians. So my mind is never as clear as it should be, but last Sunday it was more clouded than normal. And I, when I sat down or when I went home and reflected on it, I regretted that I didn't stress this enough and I just want to briefly circle back to this so this is still in the introduction of Colossians and why did you choose Colossians and what are you praying that God will do through this? One of the dangers for us, all of us, who trust in Christ for salvation is that we don't trust him as desperately for our sanctification. That we don't recognize God cares as much about sanctifying us as he does about saving us. That ultimately it isn't just to keep us from hell. That he's wanting to make us to be like his son. And so the, the, the reason we're going back to Colossians is to remind ourselves of the centrality because... Far too many Christians fail, or professing Christians, fail to make Christ preeminent. That's the word in verse 18 of chapter 1 that's so critical. First, supreme, foremost in everything. Too many other lesser things come in, crowd him out, take preeminence, even if for the moment or for the day or for the circumstances, rather than Christ. Or too many don't see him as all-sufficient for every, 
every possible spiritual need any of us could ever have from our past to the present to what's coming in the future. So the danger and the way Carl Truman, and I don't know that he was the first person to coin this, this is where I first saw it, warns us of what he calls Christless Christianity or less Christ Christianity. So Dean in Syria, in Syria, who grew up in a mainline church and heard lots of things about God, even about Jesus, but not the necessity for a personal faith as a sinner, says this, and he's a pastor now in Florida, the largest mission field where I live is called cultural or nominal Christianity, where people self-identify as Christian, but they are not in Christ and Christ is not in them. The mission field is made up of people who quickly answer yes if asked whether they're Christians, but ask any questions about their faith, you'll soon realize you're hearing something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you asked a nominal Christian why he is a Christian, Jesus Christ himself would likely have little bearing on the answer. So just the challenge for why is First Street going through this, if we're bringing the gospel to the nations, we must first bring it to those in our pews. Unsaved Christians, people who identify themselves as that, desperately need Christ. And the other danger is that it's Christ plus, and then you can fill in the blank afterward. And chapter two is really going to deal with that. And we can just see it simply that throughout this week, some of us will rely more on our favorite preacher or podcaster or blogger or counselor or whatever it might be for how to do life. So it's just that challenge of pragmatism. I'm going to look for practical things that humans generate rather than finding all my all-sufficiency in Christ. And as Spurgeon warns us, if you take, or I'll use the word leave, if you leave Christ out of your Christianity, your Christianity is dead. So hence the title, The Preeminence and All-Sufficiency of Christ, and then the subtitle within that, To Make All Mature in Him. So last week, we worked our way through the first five or four and a half verses, got a little way into verse five, where we have Paul's greeting and then the beginning of Paul's prayer of thanksgiving which runs at least through verse 14. Some would argue that it runs all the way through verse 20, uh, 23 of chapter one. And we titled last week's The Beautiful Effects of the Gospel on particularly the local church within this little town of Colossae, which had had just one faithful man, as far as we know, Epaphras, perhaps some other friends that were saved in Ephesus under Paul's teaching, who brought the gospel back to the community. And at the very end of uh, last week, we saw that the gospel gives sinners, we're also called saints in verse two, the church such hope of what is laid up in heaven. And this quote comes in after the slides were built and sent. So I apologize if you're a visual learner like me that you don't get to see all of this glory of this quote, all this good stuff, but listen as well as you can. If, it were, if I were you, I'd be like, uh, squirrel. But try to, try to hear this. This is Scott McKnight about the hope of heaven. An eternal society or fellowship where union with God, worship, justice, love, peace, 
and holiness are unthwarted in endless, pulsating, growing, flourishing of the people of God. The hope of the future, or as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, this also didn't get in under the slide, where he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people on the face of the earth who have ever lived, the most to be pitied. We bank on the hope of heaven and what is awaiting. We can say that the gospel is good news about a lot of things. It is good news about forgiveness. It is good news about being reconciled with God. It is good news about being redeemed and ransomed and pardoned. But it is good news of hope. The gospel gives hope, such hope, both for now, like what we receive, we hope in what the word has promised and we realize it and see it. Back in March, we took two Sundays to just walk through about 40 gifts of salvation that are given to us that we begin to experience now on some level and will experience for all of eternity. But hope knows we ain't seen nothing yet. We have barely scratched the surface of the glory that is coming that we are going to enjoy. And that hope, verses 4 and 5 tell us, fuels our faith in Christ. The two go hand in hand. Faith drives us in our present days to God, to Christ. And hope drives us toward the future that we look forward to with Christ. And that hope and that faith fuel supernatural love in all of us, in all that God saves, all who have hope, all who have faith in Christ, love. So, beautiful pillars, just reminders again, because it's such a rich part of this opening part of Colossians, and I just want to leave us with these applicational questions, again, because I didn't feel my ending last week was very clear. For those who visit, and I see some of you visiting, it would be interesting to survey you this morning on the way out. <laughs> but for those who even know about First Street Bible's existence, how do you think they think of us? It's not what we're ultimately living for, but what do you think is our reputation? Now, on the, I realize that the spiritual maturity of how somebody thinks about a church dictates some of this, but is it mostly physical things like they're crowded in church. It's always cold at the beginning of the service and really hot at the end. <laughs> Parking is crazy. There's so many kids they get under your feet. The treats are nice. The trains are crazy. And when we had this massive mural, that sometimes was what people remembered more than anything else about us. Or perhaps more spiritual qualities. Our music, our prayers, our preaching, perhaps certain doctrines or practices that we have. But are we known for our hope? Are we known for our faith in Christ? Are we known for an amazing supernatural love that God has given us for other people? Now, to encourage you, a membership application within the last year that came in said this in it about why do you want to become a member? Since the first Sunday that we came, it felt like home, 
and the loving atmosphere that we were welcomed with was so refreshing and restful. And so, yes, God is at work in these ways. But as I also thought, and I'll steal a line from Mickey Joseph now, we not so much the hope part. We don't hope, perhaps, we aren't known for that, and that's some on me. So I will endeavor to do better. But let's all, let's all, it's not just on me. We all, together, let's remind each other always of heaven, and maybe, maybe most in our deepest and darkest sorrows here. So today, we're going to continue what we began in verse 3 of this prayer, and uh, primarily today, just on the thankfulness piece or aspect of it, um, and just think about or seek to learn from Paul's prayer here for the Colossian church how we also should pray. This week, on Thanksgiving in our prayer Next week, on what we ask God for in our prayers. Now, we've all learned how to pray somewhere. Usually it's a conglomeration of things, but each of us in the way that we pray has formed that idea of how to talk with God from somewhere. Often it's from other believers who have discipled us, from our parents to others who have taught us. We see it modeled, etc. But our best place that we can learn how to pray is from God's word, where he gives us perfect examples of that. Certainly, when the disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray, and we saw Jesus pray, or in John 17, when we're given the words that Jesus prayed just before he went to the cross, are tremendous ways that we learn how to pray. From the Psalms, nearly every Psalm is a prayer in a song of form and teaches us how to pray. But we can also learn a great deal from the apostles and the early church. The very first foundational prayers for the church and for believers as the gospel was first going out. And here Paul teaches us perhaps very simply, before he talks about God, he talks to God or speaks of talking to God. Before he talks to the church, he talks to God, and before he asks God for specific ways that he desires that he work, Paul first spends time thanking God for what he has already done and what he is currently doing. In fact, you'll see thanksgiving not only in these opening lines, verse 3, but you'll see it down in verse 12 as the climax or the culmination of what he prays for for the church as well. And then if you leaf quickly over to I'll wait on that. We'll come back to that one. Well, go to, go to chapter 2, verse 7. 6 and 7 are a sentence. But it's talking about spiritual development. You've received Christ. There's your salvation. Now every day walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, abounding in what? Thanksgiving. Now go over to chapter 4, verse 2. Final little section on what believers are to be devoted to when Christ is preeminent in their life. And the exhortation in verse 2 is continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with what? Thanksgiving. So, and it's elsewhere 
Uh, you'll see it in chapter 3, verse 16 at the end. Like it's all over the thankfulness that we are to have. So David Garland here, I think, is great. Paul never trots out some stock, all-purpose prayer that he maybe just recites by rote, but carefully tailors it to the situation of the church. He creates a beautiful tapestry of praise and thanks to God. Now, we don't know the full context of where this prayer comes from. Certainly, it can just come from Paul's private prayer and from his own heart. But ponder also, in light of what we're told about Epaphras in chapter 4, verse 12, which is one of the last sentences in the whole letter, where we're told that Epaphras is always struggling for you in prayer on your behalf. He's always wrestling in prayer for you. I think it's very conceivable that this is how Epaphras and Paul in a prison cell in Rome have prayed for the Colossian church in a very unique and very beautiful way. And so we know, we know doctrinally and we know theologically that God can do whatever he wants without one of our prayers. But in some mysterious, beyond a human way to explain it, God also works through our prayers. God waits to hear from us and in some ways accomplishes his will uh, through the way that we pray. And all kinds of things impact that, the faith of our prayers, the belief in the promises and the reliance on it, the holiness of our prayers, the holiness of our lives. James 1.16, the prayer of a righteous person has what? Great power. So, Paul's example here, I think Epaphras' words are probably, or his thoughts, his prayers, are wrapped into this as well. And from these two godly men, and through the Holy Spirit, working on what they ought to write down, which one of their prayers, or what were the highlights, or however we get the prayer that we have here by God's working, what a provision for us to learn how to pray. For prayer is the heart by which a church is to live. Lord, we ask you today what the disciples asked of Jesus. Teach us to pray. Though we do not fully understand how, we do know that prayer is powerfully used by you. So as your people, given an incredible privilege to pray, to talk to you, to approach your throne of grace for anything and everything, and to have the promise we will always receive the grace and mercy needed for the moment. We come to you asking. We confess that our praying is all too often so weak, so self-centered, so earth-centered, so finite. Forgive us. Open our eyes to see our intercessor, our, our Savior, taking our prayers before you. Open our minds to understand and open our hearts to trust, love, and obey you. More and more we ask in your name. Amen. Okay, now we're ready to open the text. Starting in verse 5, which is in the middle of a verse, I think it would have made more sense when centuries later somebody was putting verse breaks in to have put a verse break here. But the thought is continuing. So you'll see of this, 
That's a pronoun. What's this? Well, the last thing it was referred to was hope. So, of this hope, you have heard. And heard is an important word. You'll see it again in verse 6. Before. This isn't the first time in this letter that you're going to hear about the hope of heaven. You've heard it before. And where do you hear the hope? You hear it in the word of the truth of the gospel. That's really three ways of saying essentially the same concept. The word, the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. In other words, Paul is saying, we're not, this is not a new concept that I'm introducing. Epaphras has been faithful to teach you of the hope as he's brought the gospel to you. Scott McKnight again. Truth, the gospel, the word, is the revelation of God's mission in King Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, and his rule with a view toward the coming kingdom. So Paul is beginning to press them here to remember the truth that saved you is the truth, the gospel, that must continue to carry you. That's where he hasn't said that yet, but that's where he's going with what he's going to express in this letter. The truth by which your your faith was first beginning is the truth by which your faith will grow to completion. It's what we might call the universality of the gospel, that it is the same, it works the same way, and it works within every individual in Colossae or in Lincoln or wherever it might be. So let's just pause here and say, the truth has come to you. The word, the gospel. You can read even more about it in the bulletin, particularly that middle section on the wonderful news of what God has done. And the reason we read Romans 10, 8 to 13 was just a reminder of this very thing, that the word, the truth, the gospel has come very near to you, and that is a gift of God. He has brought it to your ears, to your eyes if you have the word in front of you, and to your heart And here is the key response, that you confess Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, and all that led up to that raising of the dead and why it was so necessary, and you will be saved. For from the heart one believes and is justified, not by his works, not by his actions, but by believing in Jesus Christ, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Colossae 2,000 years ago, you here in Lincoln today can have the gospel, the truth, the word come near to you. You can believe and you can be put into Christ and be radically changed for all of eternity. And you too have the hope of heaven. If you've never consciously, intentionally cast yourself on Christ to save you through the gospel of what he has done. We urge you today, do that for all of eternity. Okay, from here, uh, still continuing this thought, we don't have any period. Paul moves now to a gratitude for the grace of the gospel being preached and believed in the whole world. So he widens the lens out from, man, what God has done in Colossae when the word came to you is amazing, but what God is doing broader than that in all of the world, you're not alone, you're not the only community. 
And this is what Jesus prophesied would happen after he left the earth, just before he left. In Matthew 24, he said the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout, here it is again, the whole world as a testimony, as a witness, as a way for all nations to be saved if they will believe. Romans 10, where we've been uh, reading from this morning, references this Old Testament prophecy that the voice will go out to all the earth, not just to Israel, their words to the ends of the earth. And then later in Colossians 1, we'll see that this gospel, Paul says, has been proclaimed in all creation. Certainly it doesn't mean that every single person has heard the gospel, but Paul's point is it's going out everywhere. It's not exclusive to certain nations. You know, there's, there's nothing other than God purposely sending this out. I love the way David Garland described this process here. The gospel has swept across geographical and racial barriers. Against all odds, it has found a ready reception throughout the world, and this power to surmount provincial resistance testifies to its truth. The message of God's love for all humankind and Jesus' sacrificial death to redeem us by grace speaks in any language or culture. It speaks to the universal condition of every human being, male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. And Garland's referring here, if you look over to chapter 3, verse 11, where it says, in Christ there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all to all people equally, and Christ is in all people equally, no favoritism, not some more than others. And back to Garland's quote, a seed as small as the mustard has been sown, and it will produce magnificently because of God who gives the, cro- the growth, and that's 1 Corinthians 3, 7. The gospel was bursting forth. <laughs> Sorry, my watch is off, and that means a lot of trouble for you. <clears throat> This is the power of the gospel, that Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it has what? The power of salvation. That no matter who, no matter where, no matter when, it gives the same hope to all believers who will trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. This, again, is how universal the truth is. It is unhindered by any people, any culture, any place, any practice, anything. And it's doing the exact same work today in Lincoln, Nebraska, as it was 2,000 years ago when this letter was written in Colossae. And lest we think that it's worse now in America than the early church had it, Garland again reminds us here, Paul lived and the Colossians lived in an age no less pluralistic than ours. And it was no less scandalous for Christians to reject the pervasive idolatry and to claim exclusive truth in a culture that prized tolerance. Paul does not blush to say that God's full self-revelation is summed up, not in man, not in works, not in anything, it's summed up in Christ, and that this revelation is more true and more moral than any other one. So here is the gospel. It's not stagnant. It's not weakening. It didn't start powerfully when this letter was written, and now it's faded out and you don't even find it. Now, Colossae is a town. We don't know anymore. It hasn't been excavated. It's gone. But the gospel and the church have grown and spread throughout the world and has continued to do so and is continuing to do so. 
The better it is understood, the more it is believed, the more it increases and the more fruit that it produces. So even today, 2,000 years later, today, tens of thousands of people, sinners, will be saved from damnation to hell and given eternal life and the hope of heaven because somebody with a different name than Epaphras, but similar in spirit to Epaphras, has shared the gospel with them, and God in his mercy and grace has saved them as they've trusted in his son. And that was true yesterday, and that'll be true tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and all the way through until Christ returns. This gospel is spreading and working, and sometimes we get so myopic and just here in Lincoln, Nebraska. And God is doing phenomenal work. MacArthur reinforcing all of this that we've been saying. The gospel transcends ethnic, geographic, cultural, and political boundaries. The gospel produces fruit both in the internal transformation of individuals and also in the external growth of the church. The two concepts are interrelated. The spiritual growth of individuals will lead to new converts being one to Christ. May God make that true here in us. But this is why also missions is still so important. I love the fact that on this day when we are gathered here, just through relationships that we have, some from our own body going out, the gospel is being proclaimed in Lithuania. The gospel is being proclaimed in Jerusalem. The gospel is being proclaimed in Nairobi, Kenya. And the gospel is being proclaimed in a community I can't pronounce correctly, in Laos. We're all a part of putting God, sending people out and us trying to support them and pray for them so that the gospel will keep doing exactly what Paul is describing and talking about here. One final thought, we've got to go much faster from Douglas Moo. And for those of you that just love the big picture thing, I think this is really cool. So he's talking about the fact that be fruitful in Genesis 1, starts at creation, is restated in Genesis 8, is reaffirmed when in Genesis when Abraham is appointed. But Mu ties that into what God is doing through the gospel. God's original mandate to humans finds preliminary fulfillment in the nation Israel, but ultimate fulfillment in the worldwide transformation of people into the image of God by the means of their incorporation into Christ, the image of God. And later he says, the gospel is authenticated not by its truth only, nor by its power in people's lives only, but by both working in tandem. And then Paul comes back down, now brings the lens back down to the Colossian church, to this one local church community, and says, that's the way it worked in you since the day you heard about it, probably from Epaphras, and understood the grace. And now he has a new word. So he's seen the word, the truth, the, the gospel, and now the grace of God in truth. Alistair Begg, there is no one word that is a better summary of what the gospel is about than the word grace. It's the very essence, or McKnight, it's the core of Paul's missional theology. Genuine salvation can only begin when one understands in truth grace and what God is doing, why it is necessary, why our works, what's wrong with sin, why it excludes us from heaven, where grace comes from through Jesus Christ, and how one receives it by faith and repentance. 
and the well-known truth which is stated in the past because it's written to people who have already been believed. But we can also read equally in the present. By grace, you are or will be, can be saved through faith. It's not ever gonna be your own doing. It'll never be about you. It's a gift that comes from God. That's what grace is. Not a result of you doing works that then God would extend grace to you. It's grace from beginning to end. So have you understood the gospel of grace, the grace that is given through the Lord Jesus Christ? Petting a little faster, verse seven. Paul now moves from worldwide down to local church down to a particular individual and how the gospel has worked in this one man that we know of as Epaphras a pretty remarkable man who has been used by God in pretty remarkable ways. So we see in verse seven these descriptions. He's a beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And if you go to chapter four, verse 12, you'll see that there he is described as a servant of Christ Jesus, always struggling in prayers. Once again, on your behalf, you'll see that phrase in both 1, 7, and 4, 12, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea, a nearby town, and in Hierapolis, another nearby town, probably all of them in the valley together. Incredible qualities that this man has. What a resume. He's beloved. In other words, he shows it. You can tell that what he's doing is not this duty that he's doing, but it's done out of a love for people and a love for the Lord and a love for the gospel. He's a minister or a servant, both of those terms pretty interchangeably in terms of one who is submissive to a master, to a, to a leader, to a Lord. He's devoted, he's loyal, he's obedient, he carries out his master's mission. And don't just think when you see the word minister of vocational, professional. We're all ministers of the gospel, ministers of reconciliation who are carrying out the ministry of Christ. He's faithful, verse seven goes on to say. He has stayed true no matter what opposition has come. And then in chapter four, verse 12, he's always struggling in prayer. He's an intercessor. Also in verse 12, he works hard for churches in three different communities. Perhaps as a pastor, could well just be as a layman, just faithfully carrying out ministry and seeking to keep three different local ch communities and churches going. So summation, Epaphras is an evangelist. Epaphras is a teacher, a, a disciple maker. He cares deeply. Notice verse 12 in chapter four, that every single believer stands mature and fully assured in all the will of God, all the word of God. And he's a prayer warrior in the truest sense of a warrior. I don't know of any of my prayers I could say that there was actual wrestling taking place with God, perhaps not to the extent that Epaphras is willing to do it. But part of what Paul's emphasizing here is, you didn't hear it from me first, you heard it from Epaphras, but it doesn't make any difference. The power of the gospel is not in who speaks it. Let's not give credit to humans where it doesn't belong. Praise God for humans who are faithful to proclaim it and share it. May every one of us do that this week. But the power of the gospel is God's. It is Christ and what he has done 
And that work is what radically saves and transforms people. Paul is saying it's no less powerful because it came from the lips of Epaphras than if it would have come from me as an apostle. The gospel has its own power and it takes the simplest of people who are obedient to profess it to do incredible work through it by God's choosing. So Paul is simply saying, here is an equal co-laborer with me for Christ, marked out by incredible commitment. So very quickly, who are the Epaphrases that God has put into your life? Who are the people who have faithfully cared about you and your faith in Christ and your growth in Christ? Have you thanked God lately for them? Have you realized that's an incredible gift God has sent you? None of us would be here without the Epaphrases working faithfully. And are you an Epaphras to others? You have a different name, but you do you work in that same spirit and love for the Lord. May God help us to share the gospel the way this man did. May God help us to be faithful ministers and servants after we've shared and after people have believed to disciple them and to work hard, as is said of Epaphras, so that people would be mature in Christ and not just tossed about as uh, young, immature believers. And may God make all of us prayers like Epaphras. Final section, because there's a final thought at the end of this sentence, and it goes back again to the local church in Colossae and reminds us again of love, which we saw back in verses four and five. But here, there's an added emphasis. And interestingly, it's the only mention of the Holy Spirit in the letter. Now you leave a couple pages over to Galatians and you get Holy Spirit all over the pages of Galatians, particularly chapters uh, three, four, five, and six. But here is the single mention. He's presumed through everything else. We'll talk about him throughout all of it. None of us can understand what's on the pages of our, of our screen or our Bible right now apart from the Holy Spirit. But here he is simply reminding you are loving because the Holy Spirit has given you a love. 1 John 4, 7, from another apostle. Love is from God. Those four words are like, that's where it originates. It's not from your own will. It's not from your own effort, ultimately. Romans 5, 5, God's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit then sends that out toward others. Galatians 5, 22, the fruit, the number one thing that God identifies as the evidence and the working of the Holy Spirit in any human being's life who trusts in Christ is love. We get a lot of other blessings, peace, joy, patience, lots of good things, but at the foremost is this phenomenal, amazing love. John Piper puts the word, the truth, the gospel, the Holy Spirit, hope, love, and grace all together in this quote. Direct the attention of your mind day and night to the word of God's promises. Seek in all humility to the help of the Spirit to see the wonder of what is really there. So that, as Peter says, you can set your hope fully on the grace that is coming to you. You've received a bunch. Oh, there's more coming to you at the revelation of our great Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. And by the grace of God, the result will be the visible fruit of love. There is no better evangelism in all the world than a church whose hope is in God, so strong that they gladly deny themselves in order to meet the needs of others. And Piper in his article goes to Hebrews 10, 
32 to 35, which talks about what a struggle those believers had and how they were afflicted and had things taken away from them. But the key is what we're told at the end of that by God. You knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You knew that whatever was taken from you here on earth, your health, your property, whatever it was, this is all temporary. You have something that is eternal, that is infinitely better. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Or as Spurgeon simply put it, you have an infinite future. Do not limit your thoughts to a finite present. MacArthur, the result of hope is a willingness to sacrifice the present on the altar of the future, to forsake the present glory, comfort, and satisfaction of this world for the future glory that is ours in Christ. With this, we finish the first half of the prayer in Colossians 1. It's the half on Thanksgiving. May God use this prayer to teach all of us to pray more thankfully. And again, I would just remind you, it's here. It's in 112. It's in chapter 3. It's the beginning of chapter 4. It's in chapter 2. May we all become more appreciative of the gospel, not taking any of what the Lord is doing in our own life, in our church, and in this world for the sake of saving people. Let's not skim past the blessings of the past that God has already given in order to get to what we want God to do in our future in terms of this life. Asking is good, but let's balance that with thanksgiving. Alistair Begg quoted this. He didn't know who said it. I don't know where it originated. Perhaps some of you do that can tell me. A prayer without thanksgiving is a bird without wings. Pretty graphic depiction of how important thanksgiving is when we pray. May God keep deep in our attitude for the power of the gospel, the pervasiveness of that gospel, and the effectual working of the gospel. Garland made reference to Matthew 13. I would just remind you, it's not on the screen. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, Jesus telling this parable, that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. We are nesting in the branches of the gospel that is this massive, glorious tree of life. Let us also be thankful for what God is doing in the world, each of the three things that we identified in the title. Let's not be too narrowly focused on us and our issues and our struggles, though we bring all that in prayer, but let's be globally minded, missions minded, that God is working in every nation today. God is working in tribes. God is working so that every tongue, thousands upon thousands of languages will all be used to exalt his great name. Let's join in that advancement and let's be faithful to pray for that. Let's be thankful for the church uh, bodies that God raises up, including this one, by God's grace for our gain and our benefit. Let's appreciate every church that God is raising up faithful to his design. Millions of churches around the world for his glory. And finally, 
let's be thankful for the impacts that God has with the gospel in individual people's lives in the Epaphrases of the world. And let's pray not only thank you, Lord, for every Epaphras you've brought in my life, but Lord, make me an Epaphras to others for your sake. Father, thank you so much for this prayer that you recorded. I pray it will change the way we pray as you would intend for it to. Let us not be merely hearers, Lord, this morning of what Colossians 1, 3 through 8 says and go away unchanged. For you tell us we're deceived when we do that. Grow our prayers and our thanksgiving to be fitting and appropriate for the worthiness of the God to whom we pray and the power of the gospel going forward here and around the world now and until you return. We pray in your name. Amen.